Well, today is Palm Sunday, uh, but we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and so we are we're going to move forward from from Palm Sunday uh, in the the uh, trajectory of the the Holy Week. On uh, September eighth of last year, Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of ninety six years old. She was England's longest reigning monarch. And uh, when she died, an operation was launched called Operation London Bridge. And Operation London Bridge was simply the, the planning and the administration of what was one of the largest funerals that this world has ever known. And it was truly spectacular. Uh, so England had a 10-day period where the, the country was in mourning. For five days, Queen Elizabeth's body was lying in state. 250,000 people visited to, to pay their respects. Uh, it was all broadcast on television. The funeral it was one of the largest special broadcasts ever produced. Uh, at, after the funeral, 3,000 military personnel uh, led a procession from Westminster Abbey to Wellington Arch. Thousands and thousands of people lined the side of the road. It was truly spectacular. It was a spectacle. It was something to behold. So today, as I said, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to the crucifixion of Jesus. And in contrast to all of the pageantry associated with Queen Elizabeth's funeral, uh, Jesus' death and his burial was, was the complete opposite of that, of that. In fact, we're going to see that Mark sums it all up with four words. And they crucified him. That's it. And they crucified him. This economy of words, this brevity of words underscores just how momentous this death was. There was no funeral for Jesus. There was no people, no one got up and shared any thoughts about who Jesus was and what he meant to them and the things that he did. He's executed, he's taken off a cross, he's put in a, put in a tomb, the stone is rolled over the face of the tomb, and that seems to be the end of the story. Now we know the end of the story, and so we don't let the Mark's economy of words as just a, a half a chapter in Mark chapter 15 underscore just how momentous Jesus' death was. Truly, this was the inflection point in the history of the world. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we know that we uh, need your eyes, we need your ears to discern what it is that you are saying to us uh, today. And so we pray that you would give us uh, those eyes, give us those ears. And Lord, accomplish what only you can accomplish through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit. May the words of my mouth, the declarations of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick it up at Mark chapter 15, verse 20. Then they led him out to be crucified. 
A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And here are the four words. And they crucified him. I've been thinking this uh, week about Simon and his family. It says Simon was from Cyrene, which is uh, from North Africa, modern-day Libya. And so he was likely a, a Jewish man, a Jewish family, and they have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. And now they're getting closer to Jerusalem, and you can imagine the, the excitement and the anxiety that they're having over this trip and, and over this festival and having been on this journey. And the next thing they know is that Simon is being conscripted by the Roman army to carry a cross, to carry the horizontal beam of a man who has been sentenced to die, but this man is too wounded, too beaten to carry his own cross, and so now Simon, this innocent traveler, is carrying a cross. And if it's true that his wife is with him and his two boys, Alexander and Rufus, you can imagine the terror that they're experiencing as they watch their dad carry this cross. If you believe in, in luck, in coincidence, this has to be the worst luck that there could possibly be. But if you believe that there is a God who sovereignly works in all the circumstances of life, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is God up to in the life of Simon and his family? I imagine Simon's asking himself two questions. One, why me? Like, we have nothing to do with this. We have just come to Jerusalem like we do every year to, to worship. Why me? Why is this happening to me? And the next question I think he might be asking is, who is this man anyway? This man whose cross that I'm carrying, this man they're calling the king of the Jews, who is this man and what has he done to deserve death? Now, Mark somehow knows the names of Simon's sons. He writes, Alexander and Rufus. How is that possible that Mark knows the name of the sons of Simon? In, so this letter is being written primarily, this gospel is the first audience are the Christians in Rome. And so he's writing to the, the Christians in Rome, and he's writing about this Simon and their sons, Alexander and Rufus. When you read the letter to the Romans that Paul wrote, in chapter 16, Paul is kind of concluding that letter. Listen to what he writes. This is verse 13. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me also. Now, it's very possible that there were multiple Rufuses, but it's also very possible that this is the same Rufus, the same boy who watched his dad carrying Jesus' cross, that this Jewish family witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. And through witnessing it, they came to the Lord, so much so that they ended up being this prominent family in Rome. Paul says about Simon's wife, 
that she was like a mother to me. Now, again, we don't know this for sure, but to me it seems exactly like the sort of thing that God would do. We often say that God works in mysterious ways. There are so many people today who are following Jesus right now because God did something exactly like this. He worked through a chance encounter, something that, that just appeared, maybe even appeared to be bad luck when it first happened, and yet he used that to draw someone to himself. There is nobody, the scripture says, that is beyond his outstretched arm. And so what does that mean for us? Well, for those of you who are praying for somebody right now, someone that you love, someone that doesn't know the Lord, there is great hope. Like they may be only one God-sized encounter away, one conversation away, one circumstance away from coming to know the Lord, which means keep praying. Don't stop praying. Nobody is outside the reach of God's outstretched arm. It means keep praying, and it also means that, that you might be the one that God chooses to use to draw someone to himself. The scripture says to us, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may be able to answer everyone. We never know what God is doing in us and through us, and so we have to be ready. And so Jesus is offered a bit of wine to dull his senses, to numb the, the pain, and he refuses it. He's going to experience the, the pain in its fullness. And then Mark writes about the, this greatest event that has happened in all of history with these four words, and they crucified him. In the history of understated words, this is at the top of the list. And they crucified him. Jesus came to us and we killed him. John writes about it this way. He came to that which was his own, that which he had created, and his own did not receive him. John is kind of softening it there a little bit. His own did not receive him. No, what his own did was kill him. We could understand that if, if Jesus, if God said, you know what? I created you, I love you, I sent my son to you, and you have rejected me at every turn. You've killed my son. We could understand if he decided to go Pontius Pilate on us. I'm washing my hands of you. I, I'm done. Have it your way. But we know that's not how the, the story continues. And they crucified him. I find it interesting that uh, if Mark wanted to, as a, an author, he could have appealed to our emotion. I mean, he could have been using these emotionally charged words to describe the crucifixion. The historian Josephus calls this one of the most pitiable types of death that exists. Mark could have played on our heartstrings, but instead he just says, and they crucified him. Which makes me recognize Mark's intent is not to stir in us some kind of emotional reaction based on the brutality of the cross. There's a lot of other people who died being crucified. Jesus is not alone in that. So what is Mark trying to do? He's trying to appeal to us the depth of God's love. That's what he wants to, to grab our hearts, the depths of God's love that that Jesus, the innocent one, 
would submit himself to death on a cross for us, the guilty ones. That is what is to grab our hearts and bring us to our knees in worship. Continuing reading, it says, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which to see what each would get. You might call it one of the fringe benefits for a Roman soldier who's assigned to the execution detail. The the person who was crucified was normally stripped naked, and so all of their, their clothes, any of their valuable possessions, jewelry, money, those people who crucified him, they, it was theirs for the taking. And so Jesus is crucified, and there are these Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross bickering with one another. I want his sandals. I want his tunic. No, I want his tunic. Let's cast lots to see who gets it. One of the soldiers that day won the lottery. The dice were rolled in his favor. He won the lottery, maybe got a pair of dusty sandals, and in the process, he lost his soul. Look at the picture. The Savior of the world is suspended just a few feet over their head. But instead of looking up, they're looking down in the dirt. At what? Some dusty clothes? A pair of sandals? It is so, it is so tragic. And it is so characteristic of what we do today, of how this world operates Jesus Christ came to give us the greatest gift that we could ever be given, and instead we're looking in the dirt, playing with things that tomorrow are going to be in a landfill, consumed with sandals, consumed with a a tunic, consumed with another $1,000, consumed with a, a promotion, with another toy, another trophy, all destined for a landfill, all the while Jesus is just a few feet above us. There's this incredible allure that the things of this world has on us. Materialism, especially for us living in America, it is one of Satan's greatest tools that he's using us to to look down into the dust, down into the dirt. And so how do we break free from this spell? Look up. Look up. Psalmist had it right. I lift my eyes. Stop looking at the things of this earth. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. He who watches over you will not sleep. Behold, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber or sleep. The sun shall not smite you by day nor the moon by night. You will watch your going out and your coming in for this time forth and forevermore. Look up. That's how we break the spell. How gut-wrenching to be in such close proximity to the Savior and to miss it. Continuing reading, it was the third hour when they crucified him, 9 a.m., The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, 
shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I wonder... If Jesus called their bluff, if he called the bluff of the, the chief priests who are saying, he saved others, come down and we will believe. If he called their bluff and he said, all right, I will, I'll come down so that you may believe, would they have believed? I don't believe so, not for a second. Why? Because they are mockers. They are scoffers. They've already decided they are not going to believe. No matter what Jesus has done, they're not going to believe. I mean, think of what they just said. He saved others. How can they say that so glibly? And not pause and think about, wait, wait a second. He did save others. Like, how do we explain Bartimaeus? How do we explain a blind man who's now able to see? And how do we explain someone who's paralyzed, who's now able to walk? And how do we explain someone who's been oppressed by demons and everybody knew it? And now they've been set free. And what do we do with Lazarus? I mean, he was dead. And we all knew it. And now he's out walking around. How do we explain Lazarus? They had already seen. And if they were going to believe, they would have come to belief by now. You know what they wanted to do with Lazarus? Let's kill him. Not only did they want to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus because he didn't fit into their narrative they're mockers. They're not going to believe. Jesus is alone. He's abandoned by his disciples. He's slandered by religious leaders. He's crucified by the Romans. He's mocked by people who are just passing by. People who don't even know him are mocking him and insulting him. The two criminals on either side, Mark writes that they too are slandering him and insulting him. Luke adds the detail that one of those criminals actually ended up placing their faith in him. And so when you put Mark and Luke together, what you get is that you've got these two people that are insulting Jesus, and in the process of those few hours that they're hanging next to Jesus, one of them, his heart is turned and comes to faith. It turns, that even, it turns out that even mockers are not beyond the reach of God's salvation at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah one man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, 
And when the centurion, the Roman centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. There's something that grabs us when the weather changes. We just experienced this Friday. Uh, I came home and, and Karen said, hurry, look, look out the window. And the sky was just pitch dark. And there's something about that that grabs our attention. Well, this is what happened. Jesus is on the cross. And as he's dying, the sky turns pitch dark. And all those who have been mocking and insulting, they're tired now. And so there's kind of this eerie silence. And all of that serves to amplify his voice. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? And then he breathes his last. He is experiencing the full punishment of our sins. And the Roman centurion, maybe one of them who drove a spike through his feet, looks up, sees it all, and concludes, surely this man was the son of God. It's quite possible that this Roman centurion was the very first convert following Jesus' death. Surely this man was the son of God. He breathes his last, and the curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelled from the rest of the temple, it is ripped from top to bottom as if God is reaching down himself and tearing it from top to bottom. This was the curtain that separated people from God. Only the high priest, only Caiaphas, is able to go past that curtain, and only once a year. But now God has opened the curtain saying anyone may come. Through Jesus, anyone may come. Things have kind of backfired for Caiaphas. The one thing that set him apart, now it's, you know, he's really not needed anymore. And from a distance, several of Jesus' followers, all women, are watching. All the disciples, the men have all run, they've all hidden but these women are there, and they've been with Jesus from the beginning. And they're watching, and they're taking note. There would be no funeral, no last word spoken about who Jesus was, what he had done. Instead, he's quickly taken down off the cross and put in a tomb. Verse 42, it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the, the council of the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, 
saw where he was laid. That's it. A half a chapter. No attempt to trigger our emotions, just the truth. Then they crucified him. This is what Mark offers us. And billions and billions of people have said thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather like to play in the dust and in the dirt. Not really so concerned about these things. I have no interest in, in looking up. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. But John follows that up with a real hopeful verse. Yet. Yet to those who did. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We need to hear that very carefully. He gave them the right to become children of God. There is a myth today that we are all children of God simply by the fact that we were all created by God. That is not what the scripture says. The scripture says we are all made in the image of God. And so we have dignity. Every single human being on this, this earth has dignity being made in the image and likeness of God. But to be a child of God is reserved for those people who, who look up, for those people who receive him. And listen to the good news. It doesn't matter if you're a Roman soldier who just drove a spike through his feet. If you look up, you can be saved. It doesn't matter if you're a thief who has just spent several hours insulting him, mocking him, slandering him. And if your heart is turned and you place your faith in him, you too can be saved. And it doesn't matter if you're a member of the Sanhedrin who has just rendered a guilty verdict. You're the reason he's hanging on the cross. You place your faith in him, you too can be saved. Whosoever whosoever believeth, believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. As we prepare for a communion this morning, hear this verse from Corinthians. It says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. They say, if there really is a God, you mean to tell me that this God would come and suffer? Like, if there's a God, we're the ones who's, who are going to suffer. God would never suffer for us. And you mean to tell me that not only did he suffer, but he suffered the most shameful, humiliating death that there could possibly be? And do you mean to tell me that this thing that happened 2,000 years ago in another continent, like an ocean away, has anything to do with me today? Yes, yes, and yes. What kind of God endures suffering at the hands of the people he created? A God who so loved this world that he's willing to die for it. What kind of God endures the most shameful of deaths? A God who wants to save the most shameful of sinners. Does what happened 2,000 years ago have anything to do with you today? 
If Jesus didn't die as an atonement for sin, that means we are all still in our sins. Last week, we talked about the fact that every single one of us has a day appointed where we are going to stand before God and be judged. And if Jesus didn't die for our sins, that means we don't have a lawyer to intervene and speak on our behalf. We arrive at that day and we have to present our own defense as to why we're innocent. For those who are being saved, we glory in the message of the cross. The cross declares two things. It declares that we are worse sinners than we even imagine. And it declares that God loves us more than we even imagine. It is finished. It's finished. 